Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that resident king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Amalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, that serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved, as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take ye and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Herds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come, and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks, and on all thorns and in all pastures. In that same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand wines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows men will come there, because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall not have knowledge to cry at my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, 
Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and rejoice in resident of Amalia's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria and all his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for our God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, a strong hand and instructed me, that I should not walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall follow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, and as a track on a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. This is the reading of God's word for his prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your son, the greater son of Ahaz, who now rules for all the nations. We pray now, Lord, that by the merits of that son, you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might be fed and edified at this time, that we might be built up in our holy faith, and that we might, as Isaiah admonishes us, not fear men, but fear and hallow the Lord God. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of you may be aware of some of the things that are going on in the world around us. In the nation of the Netherlands, there is an agricultural revolt going on. The farmers are up in arms. They have taken their tractors to the palaces and the places of power in the nation of the Netherlands. The reason for this is that there are uh, environmental policies being implemented that are forcing these farmers to sell their farms and stop producing food. Likewise, in the nation of Sri Lanka, the, the, almost the entire government has collapsed. The people have invaded the presidential palace because the environmental policies being imposed are causing people to not have food. In Germany and Italy, the same things are going on. These policies are being imposed. Farms are being forced to be shut down, and the people are in revolt. In our own country, we know that there is very strong evidence that our own president is involved in conspiracies with Ukrainian oil companies. These things are all evidence. These things are all out there. And many who are concerned about these things look at this and say, there's a conspiracy. The, the wicked are conspiring against the nations that they rule over. 
Just like in Isaiah's day. Just like it has been throughout history. If you pay attention to any of these stories, you've been exposed to what people call conspiracy theories. Now, there's something very important for us to recognize about conspiracy theories. On one hand, conspiracies are real. Conspiracies happen. Conspiracies are how wicked men operate. Throughout history, wicked men in power have conspired. Nero conspired to burn down the city of Rome. The Jews conspired against Christ to crucify him. We read in this passage in Isaiah chapter 7, the uh, king of Ephraim, Ramalia, and Rezin, the king of Assyria, conspired against Judah. Chapter 7, verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. They are conspiring. Now, in the Christian world, there's generally one response you hear to topics like this. Generally speaking, people will tell you that you shouldn't pay attention to conspiracy theories. That you shouldn't notice what is going on in the world around us. That it's not a Christian's place to understand how the levers of power are wielded and pulled. But I think as we look at this passage in the book of Isaiah, there's actually a more fundamental and important way to understand these things. And, and, and what the book of Isaiah is telling us, what this passage in Isaiah is telling us, is that you, you don't need to ignore that conspiracies are happening, because at the end of the day, as we're going to see in this passage, the conspiracy is going to affect Judah directly. And Judah needs to be ready for it. And the way that we get ready for this conspiracy and what the result of this conspiracy is going to be is by not fearing man and his words, but fearing God and keeping his words. What Isaiah chapter 8 verses 11 through 18 teach us is that in the midst of conspiracies, the Christian, the godly ones, the ones that God will preserve are those who do not fear man and his words, but those who fear God and keep his words. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, we're only going to notice two things. First, Verses 11 and 12 is the words of man. And verses 13 through 18 are the words of God. Verses 11 and 12 are the words of man. And verses 13 through 18 are the words of God. Now, I want to set a little bit of context as why I read the larger passage here in the book of Isaiah. So we understand the context that's going on here. And the context in this part of Isaiah is that Isaiah is prophesying nothing less than the destruction of the northern kingdom. Now, you know in your Old Testament history, after David reigned, Solomon and his son took over, and then Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, was a tyrant king. He was oppressing the people, and the kingdom split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And for several generations, that has been the state of things in the land of Canaan. But now we come up to the reign of Ahaz, 
The kingdom of Israel is plotting, conspiring to invade Judah and set up their own king on the throne of Judah. Isaiah's response to this, because Ahaz and his household, the whole house of David, their hearts had failed them. And as it says in verse 2, their hearts were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Isaiah comes and encourages them with a prophecy that the Lord God, who reigns over all things, including the conspiracies of the wicked, will destroy these kings and wipe them off the face of the earth. This is described later on in chapter 7. He uses all this agricultural imagery. He's saying essentially the northern kingdom at the hands of the king of Assyria will become a wasteland. It was a vineyard, it will now be a briar patch. It was a fruitful pasture for sheep and oxen, it will become a briar patch. The whole thing will become desolate because the Lord is going to judge them. That's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7. But one very important thing in the midst of Isaiah chapter 7 is that Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, Ask a sign of the Lord. The Lord has made this amazing prophecy. All these powerful kings are conspiring against you. Just as a historical note, this is sometimes easy for us to forget. During the Old Testament period, Judah was the weaker kingdom. Judah was less uh, prosperous. Their military was often much smaller than the northern kingdom. Judah, if you can think about it this way, Judah would be compared to uh, the nation of Switzerland during the Second World War and the nation of Germany would have been the northern kingdom. The power differential was that great. So when this powerful nation is conspiring to overtake Judah, it's not like it's an empty threat. Judah has reason to be afraid. They cannot defeat these nations on their own. So Isaiah says, ask a sign. The Lord will give you a sign. The reason that God gives signs to us, the reason he gives us these fulfillments of prophecy is to encourage our faith. It is to strengthen our faith. And it's to focus our faith. Now in Isaiah chapter, 11, uh, chapter 7, Isaiah says, this is the sign that the Lord will give you. Very interesting, isn't it? Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will also give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Very interestingly, at this stage in history, the sign that Isaiah promises to Ahaz is that the Messiah will come. The Messiah will come as God has prophesied. He will be born of a virgin, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. This seed of a woman will come, and he is the sign that you should look for to know that God's people will not be destroyed and God will preserve his church. Notice also in verse 15, he says that this Emmanuel will eat curds and honey that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now keep that in mind. If you read further into Isaiah chapter 7, 
God has described the sign that proves His word is true, the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on then, in Isaiah chapter 7, He describes those who will be preserved in the midst of this judgment. And those who are preserved in the midst of this judgment are united to Christ. They are those who are like Christ. Look at what happens. Isaiah 7, verse 21. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. Look at how those are described. The ones who are left are the ones that are preserved. And the ones that are preserved are those who eat curds and honey. Emmanuel, the, the, the son of the virgin, is also the one who eats curds and honey. What Isaiah is describing for us is that in the midst of these judgments, in the midst of this conspiracy, Christ and those who are united to Christ are the ones that will be preserved. Now all this is fine, well, and good. We don't live in Old Testament Israel. You and I don't live in the land of Canaan. You and I are not reigned over by a uh, human son of David in the same way that Isaiah was under the reign of Ahaz. And so we need to unpack a little bit uh, our theology of Christ and a little bit of covenant theology so that we can apply these passages to ourselves. Again, there are many in the church today who look at the Old Testament histories, this history and the rest of it, and they'll, they'll say things like, well, this applies to Judah and Israel. This is a, a message about Jerusalem. All of that is Old Testament. All that has been done away with. And we tend to think that now that Christ has come and fulfilled God's promises, that God is only concerned about the church and those who worship Him. We tend to think that in the affairs of men and nations, God is now unconcerned with what happens. He's unconcerned with these conspiracies. But you see, there's a fundamental mistake that we make when we think about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the dynamic that's going on in the land of Judah, the way that God rules in the land of Judah, what he's doing with Ahaz and all the rest of the house of David, once Christ has come, that dynamic is now expanded to the whole earth. In the book of Revelation, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, all of the kings and nations of the earth now belong to Christ. All of the kingdoms of the earth are now under the rule of Christ. Christ is the Son of David, ruling on David's throne, and his throne and his dominion is over all of the earth. And so the way that God acts in history, the way that he deals with conspiracy, is the same way he dealt with this conspiracy. This is why we can look at this passage and apply it to our lives today. Because Isaiah was under the rule of Ahaz. Ahaz's dominion was only in the land of Judah. We are now under the rule of Christ. Christ's dominion is over the entire world. And so what Isaiah encourages Ahaz with, the Lord encourages us with as well in the land of America. 
Well, we move into chapter 8 then. And Isaiah gives the reason why the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. Verses uh, 6 and 7. He tells us fundamentally why do these things happen. Now for you, if you brothers and sisters and myself, we can't lose sight of this. Now I mentioned the Netherlands, Sri Lanka, stuff going on in our own nation. And if you talk with friends and neighbors and you pay attention to the news, everybody has an explanation. Everybody, everybody tells you a reason. Um, liberals are, are not smart. Conservatives are greedy. This is why all of these things are happening. And so if we can only get um, intelligent people in office, if we can only get um, compassionate and, and non-money-grubbing uh, conservatives into office, if only we can improve the men at the top, all of these things will be fixed. Some people go so far when they see these conspiracies and judgments coming as to throw their hands up and say that there's no point there's no point in striving and hoping for a better future. And ultimately this comes from not understanding the reason. Not understanding why these judgments come upon nations. Isaiah tells us in verse 6. The reason the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed is because they've rejected the true religion. You see, the northern kingdom was covenanted with Jehovah. They're circumcised. They are the sons of Abraham and Jacob. They were bound by covenant to worship Jehovah. But as the northern kingdom was created, they went into false worship and they began to align themselves with pagan nations. Isaiah describes it this way. Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings upon them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and over all his banks. You see, in verse 6, Isaiah describes the religion of Jehovah, the, the true faith, as waters that flow softly. The image he uses is as if there's a uh, a gentle brook in your backyard. And this gentle brook is just flowing softly. It's always fed by the spring. There's always water to be had whenever you need it. Perhaps the deer and the fish are uh, abundant in this stream. You can go pluck a fish. You can go take a deer if you need that. Or you can just enjoy the coolness of the water. There are waters that flow softly. And this is what the religion of Jehovah is like. Isn't it? it's, it's a never-ending easy, steady stream of life-giving waters. Now, the people of the northern kingdom have rejected this. They, they've rejected these waters that flow softly, and so the Lord says, you don't want the babbling brook? I will give you the raging flood. When he describes the river of the king of Assyria, it's as if a flood is raging down the riverbank, overflowing its banks, and destroying everything in its path. Water is a powerful thing. Religion is a powerful thing. And at the end of the day, the reason that God judges nations is because they reject the true religion. The reason that nations uh, collapse and crumble 
is because they have rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the Netherlands. The Netherlands was at one time a bastion of Protestant Christianity. The Netherlands was at one time a symbol of what it meant to be a godly Christian nation. They since rejected all that. They have uh, refused the waters that flow softly, and now God is sending His judgments upon them. Because you don't want to follow me? You want to follow uh, the kings of the earth? Then you'll see what that is like. You'll experience the life that those waters give. And it's going on right now in our country. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember, in the midst of all these conspiracies, it's not because wicked men conspire together that these things are happening. It's not because the world economic form has too much power. It's not because the, the communist revolution will take over and rule the world. It's not because the environmentalists are willing to do all the wickedness they want to do. The reason that these judgments come upon nations, the reason nations go into revolt, is because they've rejected the true religion. You see this, with all due respect to our president, he is a wicked man. Recognize that. He's a wicked man. And what you see as he presents himself in public is his wickedness coming home to Bruce. He, he's losing his mental powers. He, he's losing all control over what people think of him. These are God's judgments upon wickedness because they rejected the true religion. Well, what do you and I do? Now we come to our text. What are you and I supposed to do in the midst of these things? Because as he tells the nation of Judah, when the floodwaters of Assyria wipe out the northern kingdom, those floodwaters will come right up to your neck. You're going to be affected by this all the way up to here. I'll keep your head above water. But you're going to be treading water for a little while. How do we tread water in the midst of these things? Well, Isaiah tells us first, do not fear man and his words. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. It says, The Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Now, it's important to notice how Isaiah describes this. You know, I don't know if you have. Uh, been living in the world uh, for any amount of time. I assume most of you have been living this life. And I, and I assume most of you have peers, either co-workers, family members, brothers and sisters in the church, wherever it might be, you all have peers. And we all recognize that peer pressure has a very strong influence on us and how we live. The family culture that we grow up is going to direct you in a certain direction. The school that you go to and, and the, the influences in that school push you in a certain direction. The, the society that we live in and the uh, leading voices of our society can push us in a certain direction. Peer pressure is a very strong influence. Paul the Apostle recognizes this when he says that bad company corrupts good morals. That's peer pressure. And so the way that the Lord speaks to Isaiah is he overpowers that peer pressure. He says that he spoke to me with a strong hand. 
the Lord wanting to preserve Isaiah and wanting to preserve you and I from falling into the mistakes of this generation puts a strong hand upon us. Now what is that strong hand? That strong hand is a conviction of sin and righteousness. The Lord is going to work in your life through your conscience. Your conscience is what the Lord puts His hand upon to direct you and to steer you. And the Lord puts that strong hand upon Isaiah. Now I want to encourage you in this. Conscience is one of your most precious possessions. Especially in the midst of conspiracy. Especially in the midst of judgment. Because when the floodwaters come, everything is up to grass. When God sends judgment upon a land, the institutions collapse, the grocery stores start losing their food, the gas stations are empty, families begin to break up, churches begin to close down, everything is up for grabs. Except your conscience. Your conscience is the one thing that the world cannot take away from you and that God always has access to. And it's through your conscience that He will lead you during these times, even as He leads Isaiah with a strong hand. You know, it's, you hear stories of prisoners, people that have been enslaved, and, and the ones that come out of slavery or they come out of imprisonment, maybe they've been in prison for the wrong reasons. Maybe they're martyrs for the faith. One of our hymns uses this language. They say that even though our bodies are chained, our conscience remains free. So the Lord works on Isaiah's conscience with a strong hand and tells him that he should not walk in the way of this people. Now notice the way that these people walk. I should not walk in the way of this people saying, uh, the Lord says to Isaiah, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Notice one of the first ways that we separate ourselves from the world. That the Lord directs us to not be like the world around us. It's how you speak. It's what you talk about. And how you talk about it. Remember, uh, in earlier in the book of Isaiah, it's a very fitting admonition to Isaiah. When Isaiah was called to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord says, uh, he sees the glory of the Lord, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Isaiah felt this peer pressure personally. Isaiah was a man who fell into the sins of his age. And the Lord comes to him with a strong hand and says, Do not speak the way these people speak. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that these people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The word threats can be translated as either fear or terror. And I think a better translation is do not be afraid of their fear. Do not be afraid of what they are afraid of. So the context here is that you've got all these people in Judah. They see the Assyrians, they see the, the son of Amalia, and they look around and they say, there's a conspiracy against us. There's nothing we can do. The United Nations of the Near East are more powerful than the nation of Judah. 
The um, Palestinian Economic Forum is too powerful for the nation of Judah. They're, they're implementing a, uh, a reset, a great reset, one might call it. And there's nothing we can do against this, and so they're afraid. The Lord says, do not follow their words, and do not fear the things that they fear. Now, we need to clarify a couple things here. First, in verse 12, when the Lord says, do not say a conspiracy, concerning all that these people call a conspiracy, he's not saying, be ignorant of what's going on. He's not saying it's sinful to acknowledge that conspiracies are a real thing. That, that's not the point here. The point here is that when these people talk about conspiracies, they're afraid of them. They, they talk about a conspiracy and they're always focused on a conspiracy because the thing they're focused on is what they fear. Now, why do people fear conspiracies? People fear conspiracies because they believe that is where ultimate power resides. You see, ultimately, we fear what we think is in control. People who are afraid of the United Nations think the United Nations are in ultimate control. People who fear the federal government of the United States think the federal government is in ultimate control. People who are afraid of the Chinese Communist Party think the Chinese Communist Party is in ultimate control of everything. Now, the United Nations, your own federal government, the Chinese Communist Party, they want you to think they're in control. They want you to think they rule everything. They want you to be afraid of them because they want you to think that they are in charge. But the Lord reminds Isaiah, as he reminds us, do not follow the way of his people. Do not attribute ultimate control to the conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. Instead, fear the Lord and keep his word. We move now to verse 13. But before we get to verse 13, we need to apply this a little bit more to ourselves. It, it's my conviction that this generation of Americans, we, we are living through the end of the era. We're, we're living through the end of a time of prosperity and a time of world uh, control in this country, and when these kind of eras come to an end, things get very difficult. Certainties are no longer certain. The things we take for granted are no longer guaranteed to us. We're experiencing a very small portion of this today. It's a minor inconvenience that we can't use the fellowship hall. It's really not that big of a deal. But these kind of inconveniences in the time of judgment and eras changing over into different times often stir things up. What you and I need to recognize is that when things are stirred up, when the gas prices get too high, when, when you can't afford to repair your car, when the grocery store shelves are not stopped, when these things start happening, where are you going to turn? We have to turn back to the Lord's ways. We have to maintain the one thing essential in our lives. 
And that is walking with the Lord and walking in His ways. Many people that you know, many Christians that you know, many churches that perhaps you once attended or perhaps you respected at one time will follow the way of the people. A conspiracy, there's nothing you can do. They will be afraid of the things that are going on and they will depart from the way of God. But God with a strong hand lays it upon your conscience and says, do not follow the way of the people. Instead, follow my ways. Now in verse 13 he says, uh, in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall follow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It's a very important uh, description of the Lord in this verse. It's called the Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, the host was a word that referred to the army. And so the army was called a host. The, the, the mass of all the warriors that belonged to a king. The Lord is called the Lord of hosts. He has two armies. He controls two mighty uh, bands of warriors. The first is the nation of Israel, or the church. The church on earth is one of the Lord's hosts. It's His army that He rules and controls. The second is the heavenly army of the angels. And so God is ruling over two mighty hosts, the angels and His church upon earth. Isaiah describes Him this way to remind us and to point us to the God who is in control. The Lord who is actually in control. The, the one who does rule over the, 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 uh, uh, the affairs of the nations has a mightier army than the king of Assyria. He has a mightier uh, ability to fight his wars than all the nations of the earth. He is the Lord of hosts. He rules over all of these things. He is the one that we are to follow. He is the one that we are to fear. And He is the one that we are to dread. Now remember, people fear conspiracies because they think conspiracies are in charge. Isaiah says fear the Lord because the Lord is actually in charge. The Lord is the one who is actually ruling and reigning. At one level, when you see judgments going throughout the earth, this is a reminder of this. Just as Isaiah reminded Ahaz, when the Assyrians come in, you'll know that I'm the one who did it. I whistle for the flock. I call for the bee from the land of Assyria. I'm the one who tells them to land and destroy those who are uh, opposing me. Likewise, in our day, brothers and sisters, when you look at Sri Lanka, you look at the Netherlands, you even look at what's going on in our own country. You, you look at what happened, what's happening in Eastern Europe. There's a major land war going on in Eastern Europe right now. Nobody in our generation has lived to see days like this. The Lord of hosts is in charge. The Lord of hosts is ruling. The Lord of hosts is destroying his enemies. That's what's happening. That's what's going on in the world around you. So Isaiah says we are to fear him. And as we fear him and hallow him, he will be a sanctuary. He will be a place of refuge. But he will also be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare 
to the, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 14 is another very important verse to encourage our hearts because it describes God's ways among the nations. You know, I enjoy uh, a good adventure movie as much as the next guy. I enjoy seeing uh, Rambo take out the bad guys with explosions and guns and helicopters. It's a good thing to be popular to our Friday night. However, one of the things we have to be aware of is we, we tend to think if God's going to do something against his enemies, it's going to look like that. We, we want it to look like uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus coming down on his white stallion, uh, uh, taking names and taking people out. In fact, there's, there's whole theologies that are built around this idea. Most of what uh, you know, we call dispensationalism is really just a great screenplay. That would be a fantastic screenplay if they put that on film. But Isaiah reminds us that the way the Lord often works in judging and ruling over the nation is quietly, softly, and secretly. Just as the waters of the brook are soft and sweet, the way he judges nations is imperceptible, quiet, and is not discerned usually. Look at what he says. First, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You ever trip? I've tripped. And often, when you trip, you are not, uh, you don't trip on the boulder that's the size of the house. You don't see that stone coming. coming. Often when you trip, I'm, I'm sure every time that you trip, you hit something you didn't know was there. You trip on a stone that you were unaware of, because if you've been aware of it, you wouldn't have tripped on it. The Lord says, I will be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, when, when animals get caught, you catch a stump in your backyard or you, you catch a rat, they don't know what happened to them. They're just wandering along, following their instincts, and then bam, the trap catches them. They have no idea what's going on until it's too late. Likewise, the Lord says, this is how I judge the wicked. Here's an example of this. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to be political with this, but the, the illustrations almost write themselves in the news cycle today. The son of a major politician has a terrible lifestyle, and for some reason he records his lifestyle on a laptop. And that laptop gets left in a computer repair shop with all this information on it. And now all of this data is coming out about the ruling family in our country. And it's right there for what we see. Nobody could have seen that coming in 2016. 
Nobody would have predicted this. But the Lord, through his secret, imperceptible promise in judging and preserving the nations, raises this up and causes it to happen. And now those who are in favor of abortion, they're broken. They're falling all over themselves. They're saying some of the most wicked things you could ever imagine coming out of people's mouths about abortion. Isaiah 8, 14 and 15 is being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. And so we need to remember the Lord is in control. He is working all things according to His good pleasure. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to fear Him and keep His word. This is what Isaiah then goes to in verses 16 through 18. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Isaiah is instructed to uh, write his testimony, and this is joined with the law of Moses. This scripture then is preserved for God's disciples. Those who want to learn his ways are given this to preserve them. Isaiah seals up the testimony. He gives it to the disciples. And then in verse 17 he says, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand God's ways. We need to understand that sometimes, in your individual life, in the life of many nations, God hides his face. There are times when God shows the glory of his countenance. He brings revival. He brings righteousness to a land. He brings salvation to a people. There are other times when he hides his face and he conceals his glory from the nation for a time. When it says that Isaiah, when Isaiah says that the Lord hides his face, or when in other passages like the book of Numbers, the Lord shines the light of his countenance upon us, this is a description of our experience of God's blessing. It's a description of our experience of His goodness and love and favor towards us. Think about it like this. I have a very young daughter, and she loves people's faces. She loves to look at people's faces, and when she figures out her face, she smiles. And there's also sometimes when I'm not facing her, she gets fussy. And all I have to do is look at her. She calms down and smiles. That often is how the Lord relates to His children. He will turn His face to you, and when He's facing us through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like the sun on so it's like the sun on our face, and our hearts are lifted up. But sometimes He turns His face away. Now let me ask you: If I were to ask you, "Do I love my daughter?" and you say, "Well, I hope so," I can assure you, I do love my daughter. Let me ask you a second question. Do I love my daughter more when I'm looking at her versus when I'm not looking at her? No, of course not. My love for her never changes. But sometimes I'm not looking at her and showing her. Likewise, the Lord God will often hide his face from you and hide his face from the nations. That doesn't mean he doesn't love his people. That simply means he's not allowing you the experience of looking him full in the face. So even though the Lord hides his face from Jacob, we still hope in Him. This is a description of what it means to have true faith. 
the book of Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our destiny, brothers and sisters, is to behold God's face in glory forever. Is to behold Emmanuel, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in beholding his face, all of our sorrows will be wiped away, all of our sins will be healed, all of our um, regrets and uh, depressions will be taken away from our lives because we behold the face of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That is a future hope. That is something we experience later on. Right now he gives us glimpses. Right now he gives us winks and smiles. But the full experience is later on. In the meantime, we have to hope in him. Hope for that which we do not see. This is especially true in days of judgment and conspiracy. Because what happens in the days of judgment and conspiracy is that God will begin to remove the outward signs of his presence. God will begin to take away the outward manifestation that he's blessing a nation. What do I mean by that? Well, primarily, it means removing candlesticks from churches. It means churches being closed and no longer meeting. That's one of the primary ways God makes himself known in a nation. All of you have lived through two years ago. And two years ago, many churches closed their doors, some for good. Some churches didn't survive, some churches may not survive. That's God removing the visible, uh, the, the, the signs of his presence from a nation. What's another way? The disgrace of ministers and elders. As public representatives of Christ, ministers and elders and church officers represent Christ to the communities they serve. And as those ministers and elders are exposed for sin, are brought down through scandal, are shamed because of their secret sins, God removes them and he's removing the sign of his favor. When God favors a nation, Ephesians chapter 4, he gives them apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers. In the removal of those things, he's removing the sign of his favor. For you and I, we need to recognize that's what may well happen, that's what is happening. But we still hope in Him. We still hope in Him, and we still hope in His testimony and in His Word. And then Isaiah says at the end, Here am I, and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Those of you that fear the Lord, those of you that reverence the Lord of hosts and keep his word, he will use as signs in the midst of days of conspiracy, in the midst of the floodwaters of judgment, he will use you as a sign to the people around you that there is another king. There is somebody else who's in charge. It's not the Lord Economic Forum. It's not Schwab. It's not the UN. It's not these wicked politicians who do things for their own pocketbook. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I fear Him and reverence Him, God will use you as a testimony. This brings us to our final 
um, application. Paul told Timothy, preach the word in season and out season. But then he warns Timothy. He says, the days will come when they will not endure sound teaching. They will reject the smooth waters of Shiloh. They will not want to hear the smooth, easy, life-giving truths of the gospel. And they will pick up teachers for their own selves, having itching ears. They'll turn to the religion of Damascus. They'll turn to the religion of Moloch. They'll turn to all these false religions. You, therefore, do the work of evangelists. Give testimony to the gospel. Give witness to those around you of the power of Christ. Because the people who claim to know Christ will depart. And so you go out and testify to the gospel. That's what Isaiah is describing here. We are witnesses from the Lord who dwells in Zion. Now, this, this whole dynamic, as I said, is a dynamic that is true in all ages. Isaiah gives us a particular instance of this. But Psalm 2 tells us the, the grand scheme of this. And it connects all these ideas. Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Then the Lord goes on in verse 7, I will declare a victory. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But, blessed are all of you who put your trust in him. Because he is the true king, ruling over the nations of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you give us your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can trust in him even in the midst of days of judgment and conspiracy. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us not to walk in the ways of these people, fearing the things that they fear, but that we would fear you. And that we would reverence you in our homes and in our churches. That you would give us great grace and capacity to hold on to your word and to bear witness to that word to the world around us. For, Lord, we know that this is the need of the hour. We know that this is the need and the calling of your church is to do the work of evangelists, preaching the gospel to those around us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us by sending us days of refreshing, that you would lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And smile upon this land once again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.